Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Well, here we are, and the humanists are on the attack again with love in our hearts. I don't know about yours, and and in resistance to the whirlwind headwinds, we are here when Humanist Attack is a project of a 501c3 type NGO called The Humanist Being out of the state of Vermont. I'm Roger Kimmel-Smith, and I am gleefully delighted to have as my guest on our platform, Mr. Matt Meyer, who is an international world-class organizer, educator, coalition builder, author, and editor. He has led training seminars and conferences in over five dozen countries on five continents on topics such as revolutionary nonviolence and the connections between militarism and other systems of oppression, including colonialism and political imprisonment. Matt is currently the Secretary General of the International Peace Research Association, which is an elected position. He has also served in recent years as national co-chair of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is the oldest interfaith peace and justice group in the history of the United States of America. And in earlier years, he was national chair of the War Resisters League and is still involved with War Resisters at the international level as coordinator of its Africa Support Network. And uh, Mr. Meyer is also senior research scholar of resistance studies at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And he has a prolific presence in print with many collaborative works starting in the year 2000 with his first book, Guns and Gandhi in Africa, which he co-wrote with a key mentor of his, Bill Sutherland. More recently, he's written the pamphlet-sized book, White Lives Matter Most and Other Little White Lies, and Look for Me in the Whirlwind from the Panther 21 to 21st Century Revolutions. Uh, that book has contributions in it from a dozen or more former Black Panther anth activists, uh, many of whom were or still are imprisoned. And he has other titles, including one about the movements of movements, in which he has an essay, Rethinking Our Dance, which inspired the title for talking with him. Welcome. Welcome, Matt. Hello. How are you? Roger, thank you so much. Uh, you gave such a detailed description of me. I'm sorry we're out of time now. We, we don't have, nah. we don't have time to things, but <laughs> He's really gone. He's Travel has reopened up and we have this little space of time. No, I'm just joking. Roger, <laughs> great to see you. It's great to be with you all. You know, in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, we talked a lot about interfaith traditions. Obviously, we have the base of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim uh, interfaith work. And of course, we have Buddhists and we have, uh, you know, Hindus and many others. It's nice to be talking to secular humanists once in a while, and we appreciate being in this space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I suspect we'll get back to uh, uh, stuff as we talk about anything going on past or present uh, to humanist type issues. But, you know, uh, here, let me, let me just throw out a question. It's been a little more than a year now since the the killing of George Floyd, 
uh, and Brianna Taylor and many other names we could say. And, and I think I detect a shift taking place or an advance that seems to have been made in part by movements in, in like opening up some awareness of what the United States of America is really about, what its history really is. And, and that, you know, and that seems to be why the right is making all sorts of reactionary noise against the increasingly common, increasingly bold visions of, of how racial oppression has structured all of our institutions since 1619. And this is, seems like an encouraging trend. And, and I wonder whether you see it this way and what you think it makes possible in, in the next few, whatever, in the next period. Well, thank you, Roger. I mean, I, I feel like for those of us of a certain age and, and, and a certain beard length and color, um, you know, for, for us, BLM, uh, the initials BLM, uh, stood for, for many, many years, for most of my adult life, uh, for a Black liberation movement. Um, and so Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives, uh, which of course predate George Floyd by some years, but are still part of the modern era, uh, if you will, uh, certainly have made and continue to make uh, important contributions over this last year and beyond. But I appreciate your question in terms of the longer term movement building and organization building necessities. You know, a great uh, architect of the movements of the so-called 1960s. And I say, I say the phrase so-called uh, to be precise about two things. Uh, for many of us now talking about the long 1960s, we realize that uh, what is often referred to or thought back on as the 1960s started around 1953, 1954, and mm -hmm. ended around 1976, 77. So we say so-called 1960s, but the other so-called- we, right, so we grab whatever pieces of that stuff we, we want to- And know, we'll look yeah. at movement trajectories, right. uh, which, are be, which go beyond an individual campaign or project or moment or even organization. And then the other so-called is so-called civil rights because civil rights and the civil rights movement was of course a phrase that really the white establishment, uh, academics and otherwise grafted onto a movement that never really called itself that until much, mm. much later. Mm. Uh, so what, uh, what historian and activist and, and, and really genius uh, Vincent Harding talked about uh, the Southern based uh, black led uh, US freedom movements of that period, uh, one of the great architects of that movement, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, said there are three things you really need to do and learn from that period, organize, organize, organize. And he really said, whether it's in a radical pan-Africanist organization, whether it's in a local church organization, whether it's in a secular humanist organization, when it's a, a, a mixed black and white or majority or all black, black nationalist formation or white formation, whatever organization you choose to build, without the building of organization, we are going to get nowhere. So I think that is a lesson as prescient today, 2021, 2022, as it was back in those days. And I think when you talk about the last year, Roger, yes, we've seen many organizations and some projects and many, many, many demonstrations of substantial magnitude come up. Uh, that doesn't by itself make it a campaign. It doesn't by itself make it a movement. 
Mm. But we see the budding of possibilities, the opening of possibilities uh, for greater justice, uh, for I don't even want to say greater democracy, because that suggests we have some already. But the idea uh, of, of looking at uh, democracy and human rights within the context of the U.S., um, looking at the U.S. within an international context has in some ways broadened in the last year as people have locked down and been confined to their spaces physically uh, by a pandemic that could have been avoided um, by a, uh, a police killing that uh, was foreshadowed by hundreds of years of police killings and state violence, especially against people of African descent. And so in the wake of this year, this 18 months, uh, and this incredible outpouring of street action and demonstration and, and uprisings, and I, you know, I, I hate to call what happened in January by the right and neo-fascist insurrection, um, it, it's too, uh, in some ways it's too sexy, it's too positive a word for a, a day of destruction, but really mm. the insurrectionary mm. movements of last summer. Mm. Uh, of, I, of, I would interject to say, uh, you know, I wish that that uh, word would be used more and connected to, you know, uh, it uh, being in that clause of the 14th amendment, you know, so that we could start having a conversation about whether the people who you know, are elected and are connected to this event are fit to serve. In I want to be. I want to be really careful uh, because you know I, I don't want to fit into the um, the the too easy space of taking opportunities opportunistically and say, well, Roger, I have a book coming out, but it turns out a dear uh, a dear uh, longstanding friend and comrade of mine from the Black Liberation Movement, Wendy Marshall, and I do have a book coming out October 2021 called Insurrectionary Uprisings. So we are trying to reclaim that phrase very specifically. Uh, yeah. It's Daraja, D-A-R-A-G-J-A, Daraja Press, uh, Insurrectionary Uprisings, a reader in revolutionary nonviolence and decolonization. But the but fact- cut you off midstream, so. No, no, it's fine. The no. fact of the matter is, um, the fact of the matter is, that this, this period, this key period uh, of a, a certain amount of burgeoning uh, demonstrations, uprisings, and the beginning, I would say the beginnings of potential movement building is an exciting time. It's certainly an exciting time uh, for folks in the black and brown people of color communities uh, where there seems to be a new generation of uh, focus, attention, maybe even hope, uh, at least a sense that, that action and organization is necessary. And though it may not result in anything big and broad, um, it, 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 there is no alternative but to fight for rights and for power and for justice. I, yeah, think I, I, I wonder whether you see the, uh, you know, the struggle that's being uh, joined, it seems, on voting rights now, you know, that stage is being set for something very large. I mean, this is the core of it, or is it only sort of uh, in the margins of it? Well, I think I think I was going to say before even getting to that, I think it's a different reality for white America. Yeah. Uh, and I think what, what January uh, 2021 um, and, and what the uh, echoes 
of Trump and Trumpism. And I think Trump is just one man and not the most dangerous, actually. Uh, I think we have greater dangers to come in uh, right-wing popularism and neo-fascism. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, you know, what it means for white America, what all of this means for white America, for white people in America is something substantively different. Yes, I think there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for whites who want to stand in solidarity, who want to be more than just allies, mm -hmm. uh, who, who want to understand that we must be co-conspirators, we must be agitators, we must be radicals and revolutionaries uh, under the leadership of black uh, movements uh, and black people. I think it's also true, uh, a, a dear sister also from that period, uh, Ruby Sales uh, has written and spoken about how, you know, all this makes sense if you understand that the reaction, um, that the, uh, the, the, the movements of the right are simply about protecting uh, the possibility of lost power in a, in a system and in a country that's always been based on white supremacy. And so if one understands America at night as this democracy that's had bumps along the way, but as a white supremacist patriarchal space that has always looked towards uh, the stealing of indigenous people's land, the you know slave slave labor, etc. Uh, then we understand that defense of white supremacy is simply being ramped up on another level, and therefore the role of white radicals or white solidarity activists or whites against white supremacy in this particular moment has got to be to intensify a full range of decolonial um, radical manifestations about what solidarity means today and tomorrow. So does voting rights have a piece of that? Yes, of course, but it's one piece. It's one piece. It's not the piece. It's an important piece when you have the Supreme Court and the legislature all buckling down to say, oh, no, 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 no. You thought there was democracy here? Look the other way. Yes, of course, it's an important piece, but it's definitely not the only piece. And it is only going to be changed through movement not through the passing of a particular law or one particular good Supreme or bad Supreme Court case. It's gotta be done through movement. Well, right, and, and I guess in insofar as that's true, then the movements that form and the causes you know, around which they galvanize and you know, the objectives to which they point are uh, what, what set the table. You know, that sounds like what I'm hearing you say. And so we may not really know what the, what, the, uh, what the real front of the next few years is, or fronts are likely to be. We, we won't, but that's, that's uh, to be a good movement builder and to be a good organizer, uh, and even to be a good historian, especially, is not to try to predict the future, but to prepare for it. So I'll give another example with another citation. Uh, you know, I worked with, with PM Press uh, here. I, I don't want to make the producers of the show upset, but, you know, we have this PM Press t-shirt on, uh, <laughs> Solidarity Forever. Here, we can go back to my face now. Nice but a, a forthcoming PM Press book uh, that I'm working on uh, uh, involves uh, comrades from Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, who have really struggled with some key issues of dual power. They were also involved in initiating a coalition this past year and a half called the People's Strike. And looking at what it means to have an electoral strategy, 
a grassroots organizing strategy, dual power strategies, what it means to prepare for, not predict, but to prepare for these moments to come. Uh, and there are moments where the Black liberation movement, uh, we think, uh, is going to have, as it always has in US history, uh, the key and a leading part, but also a piece where, where, where all peoples looking for uh, true justice uh, can have a role and can participate. Hmm. Wow. You know, it, it, it's so uh, interesting and valuable just, just to hear, you know, the, the, the seasoned, uh, I mean, all the experience that's coming through in your choice of verbs, you know, and such. Let me change tack and, and, and I'd like to ask people questions about, you know, how, how a person becomes Matt Meyer. You know, I, I'd like to hear you talk about, you know, stuff from the early chapters of your life, or, you know, what you think were the key seeds of, of the person you became and how they got sewn and, and, and how you learned these dance steps. Yeah, these dance steps indeed. Um, and I never was a great dancer. You know, I was always nervous as a young man with these Emma Goldman quotes, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. It's like, I'm not a very good dancer, but I really want to be part of your revolution. And um, there, there are other roles, I imagine. Well, and one realizes that one is sometimes talking figuratively, not literally. So there are many ways we can learn how to dance. Um, nonetheless, I have tried to also boogie a little bit. Geez, there's a dated word, boogie. Anyway, the fact is, um, you know, I did not grow up. I was not a red diaper, a pink diaper baby. My parents, my grandparents were not uh, radicals. They were not in any anarchist or socialist or communist organization. Uh, my dad, you know, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, as were my parents, as were uh, half of my grandparents. Uh, the other coming over from Eastern Europe, uh, fleeing, you know, czarist oppression uh, in Russia and its uh, tributaries. And the fact is, uh, you know, there was this sense about wanting to be American, but also wanting to be somewhat faithful to cultural roots. Um, and of course, what that meant for uh, people who were primarily Jewish uh, and Italian um, was becoming white. And so very subconsciously, uh, people who weren't necessarily so very white, uh, you know, a century earlier, uh, became American by becoming white uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, I was born and raised uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, my parents were, again, not organizers or activists, but my dad was part of the, the early uh, teachers union movement. Um, and, and so I learned something about working class solidarity, uh, you know, just growing up. And then more significant than that, uh, I, I like to say that they were natural born pacifists. So watching uh, the late 60s, the color TV in front of my screen as a five and six and seven year old, as body bags were coming uh, back from Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and my parents were just saying, Oh, war, war, wrong, something bad, something wrong. And so in 1979, as a high school senior, uh, when then President Jimmy Carter, who, who knew was gonna be like the most radical president of our lifetime, but when he, uh, when he um, put out this idea that reinstating registration for the draft 
would be a way of showing the Soviet Union that we too are going to get tough on, you know, preparedness for war. Uh, as a 17-year-old facing registration, I checked it out. Uh, I was the deputy uh, editor of my high school student newspaper here in Brooklyn. Uh, and uh, we did a survey and we did investigations of groups working against the draft and all that. And ultimately, I learned through those investigations about the anti-draft and anti-war and anti-registration movement. Um, I did my first little drops of student organizing uh, as a high school student. And, uh, you know, the story goes, the, the summer after high school graduation, my, my high school sweetheart, who was the editor of the student newspaper, dumped me the day before graduation. But don't don't get too sad. Don't get too sad. Um, uh, uh, we're still friends, by the way. Decades later, it's this day. Uh, but recovering from that that grief, that trauma, I I plunged into um, that movement I had just begun learning about uh, months prior. And that particular summer, it happened that the Democratic National Convention was happening in New York City, in my town, my little town, uh, at Madison Square Garden, mm -hmm. and not having you know anything in my life uh, to look forward to or be happy about, I plunged myself into into whatever was happening around the convention. Found you got your love. Yes, my new love. Um, uh, what became my new love, uh, and uh, and I ended up petitioning for a four-star mother, a woman whose uh, husband and children were killed in Vietnam. I remember her name to this day, Patricia Simon be nominated for vice president, not because we thought she was going to get an actual vice presidential nod, but so that she could give a speech on the floor of the Democratic Convention speaking against registration and the draft. We were successful. She gave the speech. And as a little thank you, a bunch of us young upstarts were given uh, press passes to go inside the convention on the last night. So I, I had this nosebleed seat way, way up at the top of the convention. But I was live in Madison Square Garden when the sitting president of the United States down at the bottom gave his acceptance speech, Jimmy Carter, for the nomination to run for a second term for presidency. And in his speech mentions registration for the draft and a little group of us united in a small cacophony, nonetheless heard live on national TV, booing Jimmy Carter at that moment. So from non-activism to booing the president of the United States live on national television in a week seemed like a good beginning to political activism. I figured, what could we do in two weeks? And so I've stayed with it. Mm. Drawn in by the media limelight. Uh, by the way, speaking of long-term relationships, for many, many years as I was involved with War Resisters League, mm -hmm. WRL, I would tell some of my teaching friends that I was going to WL, WL. And at some point someone said, who is this mistress of yours, Gabrielle? I was like, no. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but yet uh, you also pursued a career in education, right? And worked for the Board of Ed. And this was your main livelihood, I imagine, for much of your adult life. Uh, so, you know, I wonder what you think of the 
the, the sort of education issues taking place now, you know, one that comes to mind is that the, uh, you know, what the right is making a big stink of seems to just basically be exposing the United States history, you know, through this unvarnished perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I worked for many years as a high school history teacher, uh, and then eventually as a teacher trainer, and then as a professor uh, later in my career. But the fact is, um, you know, even before some of the current struggles, I think the, the nexus point of this, this particular arc, this 21st century arc of the last 15, 20, 25 years, uh, has been about uh, making sure that on a federal level, on a national level, uh, spaces for independent thought or independent action within the realm of education, pre-K through postgraduate, uh, that those spaces for independence and creativity uh, get shrunk. Someone looked up and said, oh my God, in this public sphere, we have millions and really billions and potentially over the decades, trillions of dollars that are coming from the public taxes back to the public. There's something very, very wrong about that. Mm. We have to privatize education and narrow it so that we can never have hotbeds of, I mean, forget about hotbeds of radicalism. How about just hotbeds of, oh, I don't know, thinking. We, we can't have that. Thinking is, is, you know, I mean, you all know as, as humanists, thinking is a very, very dangerous activity. So the fact that- but, and, and it's one of the key ones of basically, you know, activities that take place in the public sphere. That seems to be the real target. So the privatization of education, of which this latest uh, piece about, you know, what history is acceptable to teach and which is not, uh, has been the main struggle. It's not one, you know, I, I uh, if, you, if you push me too hard, you'll hear that I'm not uh, as hopeful, I, I you know, you said I'm the Secretary General of the International Peace Research Association, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I, I have some great worries about the US. Uh, and in part, it is because I think the struggle around education and privatization is not one that's gone well. We have in certain places, uh, especially Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, uh, Philly, a few other places, we have the beginnings of real independent uh, teacher unionism. Uh, we have other places where at the college level, we have struggles of uh, adjuncts and others to, to reclaim space and power and voice. Uh, but really uh, the, the institutionalization and privatization of education is uh, going to, I think for years and decades to come, uh, be a problem, and not just a problem for the U.S., not just a problem for democracy or progress or anything close to justice and peace. Uh, it's going to be a problem for movements as well. It's going to be very hard, I think. I mean, it's different building a, an open uh, system of critical thinking than it is to build a movement. But though different, they definitely uh, cascade into mm, each other. Mm, and it's not right. going to be Both easy. can only result from organizing, it sounds like. And so, you know, the organizing spaces to build movement uh, and the, the organizing spaces to build educational institutions where real critical thinking can be done are both necessary and will support one another if done properly. But those are huge, huge tasks and not ones 
that have fared particularly well in this last period. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it is sort of toxic that there's, you know, part of the, part of the, the, the decaying kind of social contract that we have with one another is this uh, sense that we have to bring our hope you know, uh, forward first with one another, if we're going to encounter, it's perfectly fine to, uh, you know, be daunted because it does seem like on a lot of fronts, you know, we're losing ground. Uh, you know, the, the victories that we may be able to claim are on shrinking territory in the face of uh, cataclysmic problems, you know. But we uh, have to become better internationalists. And I have to say, if there's any little shred of or, or, or shining light you know, uh, in, in some ways, getting new um, levels of uh, fluency and fluidity with the use of these technologies, uh, you know, these face-to-face, -face, we're not in the same room, but we can still have meetings and communications. Uh, it gives us an ability to be better and deeper internationalists than what we were before. It doesn't do it automatically. They're tools, uh, you know, they're not, uh, they're not gifts, they're not organizing gifts, nor are they shackles. Some people are like very, very worried about, you know, all of the screen time. And some people are very, very excited. They're tools. So you can use a hammer and a screwdriver well, or you can use it poorly. But if you look for the contacts in this or that or every other corner of the planet, you can find them and you can explore, I think, lots of areas where there's hope. I mean, I do feel and, like- and this is what you do. And maybe this is the chance to talk about the peace research. No. You know, I mean, International Peace Research Association uh, is, uh, you know, you mentioned about FOR being the oldest US. IPRA is the oldest uh, global consortium of uh, professors, students, and community activists looking at issues of peace, justice, conflict, and nonviolence uh, across the planet. And, and we've had actually for, for many, many years, a, a perspective that has really struggled against Eurocentrism or US centrism. So we have uh, five regional associations uh, that make up the day-to-day -day of most of our work. And we have a council of people from every corner of the globe where in Africa, Asia Pacific, Latin America and, uh, and Europe and North America, uh, we have scholars and students and activists who are looking at their own uh, local realities, but also looking at how we can build a better uh, world together. Uh, the Latin Americans in the last 18 months, for example, uh, have talked from almost the beginning of the shutdowns uh, and the pandemic about never ever returning to, uh, to the normality, to the normal of before. And in, uh, in fact, taking these moments now and these moments in the last year to create a new normality. And so many, many um, university-based, but also community-centered and, and, uh, and interactive, uh, interdisciplinary uh, spaces to say, how can we build a new? Another uh, world is possible. I remember that slogan 20 years ago. Absolutely. And, and you know, another world is, is possible if we build it and as we build it. So we're seeing, uh, you know, I mean, you look at Latin America today and we'll see certain spaces and it's not a linear uh, you know, progression and it's not without its bumps, but whether you're looking at Peru uh, and electoral work or Ecuador, whether you're looking at Chile 
uh, with its mass demonstrations just in the last month. We're now talking in middle July, 2021. And so whenever this airs, whenever a, a viewer may view it, it may be something different the next month. But the fact of the matter is we're seeing many, many spaces throughout the Americas undergoing all kinds of significant shifts, uprisings, and struggles. Yeah. Uh, and I think and if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like it's, you mean this uh, sort of, uh, you know, more tidal underneath whatever may be happening electorally, you know, pink tide or reversal thereof. Oh, yes. I mean, I think, well, there are parts of it that are electoral and parts of it that are not. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I think it's fascinating that uh, El Salvador, not a particular radical move, but nonetheless uh, an innovative one, uh, said they're going to make their national economy based on Bitcoin. So, you know, you're having yeah. all of these things. Uh, they, should, they should come up upstate and, and see what's involved in mining it. <laughs> the fact of the matter is uh, what we're talking about is looking at new visions and versions of what normality needs to be in the coming period. And again, they're not all going to be, you know, Marxist or, you know, anarchist or you know, some of them may even have their capitalist reverberations. And some a disaster capitalist, it sounds like, is what is what we're up against. That's the opportunity crisis thing. So we're talking about disaster, disaster anarchism. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the disaster is already here. So the question yeah, right. is how to build something that's going to be more effective for the majority of the people, uh, you know, and, and what the people means is different in different places and how, how a group defines it. But there is, I think, in many places, especially in Africa, Latin America, Asia Pacific, and the global South, so-called, uh, many places where some of this creative thinking is happening uh, at an intensified pace. And frankly, I'm involved through resistance studies, which you mentioned, and through International Peace Research Association. I'm involved with an extraordinarily exciting group of people who are in some ways the most under the gun. People who are still colonized by one superpower or another, mm -hmm. and who in their direct colonial realities are looking at alternatives. And in looking at and building alternatives, they're already looking past the dichotomies of our own shackled, you know, I like to say our grandfather's uh, uh, battles. So past Malcolm versus Martin, no, it's not about nonviolence versus armed struggle. It's about looking at creative diversities of strategies and tactics towards a new definition of revolution and solidarity and decolonization. And so, yes, uh, there's this grouping of people from West Papua, Western Sahara, Puerto Rico, and Palestine, from Tibet, and Kashmir and Amazonia in, uh, uh, in, in West Central Africa, uh, who are all under direct colonialism and neo-colonialism, who are looking at how together there might be some new ways out in this 21st century struggle for freedom and liberty. Because freedom and liberty does not necessarily mean what it meant 50 years ago when we were looking at putting up, uh, taking down the colonial flags sure. and putting up new flags. It's not That's just about flag independence. It's not just about a political end to apartheid. It's about economics. It's about culture. It's about sovereignty. It's about a deeper level of liberation. And yeah, and I mean, what about peace? All of these, these terms that were 
were really flags for 20th and maybe 19th century movements as well are, you know, they're drastically in need of, of more sharp redefinition. I think, you know, it, it's, it's already been made clear uh, that peace is not about the absence of violence, but the presence of justice. So I think that truism uh, is already fairly well understood. So now it's about how to build effective peace through lasting justice. And I think that piece, that how-to piece is, is where we're at right now. I mean, I suppose there also uh, will always be, you know, the sort of uh, reactive, uh, uh, reactively framed movement to, to oppose war, stop wars that are, that are going on you know, reframe them and prevent them from escalating. But even in the, in the early 20th century, people like, uh, you know, H.J. Musty, uh, you know, who was considered the dean of the, the peace movement at the time, right. is famously quoted or possibly misquoted. There are a number of people who are quoted with the following phrase, and we're, we're not quite sure exactly who said it first, but the whole idea is not a new one, that there is no way to peace peace is the way. And so that idea, which I think essentially echoes the thought that there is a connectivity between the ends and the means, is one that's been borne out by every liberation movement. So we look at Free Limo. I, I like to look at the example of Mozambique, where I, I did some work and, and, uh, and, and did some, some early travel and, 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 and struggle and solidarity. But you know, the Mozambicans, uh, I think, have been very clear that for them, uh, though their glorious victories towards independence um, brought about substantial positive change, uh, that there was something about militarism and, and certainly about the symbol of the armed struggle that was overemphasized and that did not, um, as, as well as they would have liked it, created a space for balance in the generations that's followed. So there have been struggles since that time. There's a reason why Grasse Machel, former Minister of Education of Mozambique, uh, is the world's leading advocate against child soldiers. That's not a coincidence. Does that make her the greatest living pacifist? No. Uh, does it make her understanding of nuance and of the connection between ends and means better than most global North pacifists? Yes, it does. Yes, in fact, it does. And so I think we have to look beyond our oversimplified and mythological versions of who was Gandhi or what was Martin Luther King and understand that we have as many lessons to learn from Frilimo in Mozambique or from other liberation movements in the South as we do from the iconized leaders of, of early 20th century nonviolence. Mm. So, you, uh, you know, uh, uh, you have and you're uh, part of and fluent uh, in the language of this rich, rich network of, uh, you know, people in struggle around the world. What are ways that you find, uh, you know, to contribute, to intervene, uh, you know, to make a difference in, in this uh, in his dance. Oh, that is a very good and complicated question, Roger. Yes, that's a very good question. 
I mean, I have to say that, um, you know, my experiences, which are privileged ones, uh, have placed me in positions where I've, I've, I've learned from, uh, you know, so many, you know, I talk about the Mozambicans or the Zapatistas or whomever, uh, folks in the, in the Black Liberation Movement here in the U.S., like my, my comrade Wendy Marshall and so many, many others. But the fact is, um, solidarity, and, and as much as we look to redefine nonviolence or redefine revolution, uh, redefining solidarity, you know, to reach new levels uh, of what that means uh, beyond uh, simply uh, being a good listener um, or, or, or struggling against racism. It's about the full eradication of white supremacy uh, and patriarchy and all forms of oppression, which is not to say the eradication of, of white men. Uh, so how to, how to- although, although we could claim pink identity. <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, I think there's a tightrope here that is especially complicated in the US um, and, 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 and complicated in my own life. Uh, so the fact is uh, one important piece is we make mistakes. Uh, the only for sure way of not making mistakes is by making the largest mistake of all, which is to remain inactive. If you do nothing, you'll never be criticized. You'll also go down in history as having done nothing. Very, so, very tempting option in a, you know, uh, a world of a lot of taking offense and <laughs> cancel culture. Yes, it's tempting. It's tempting if you, if you want to sit your life on the sideline yeah. and not, you know, um, not look to play a role for justice. Uh, and look, one of the one of the biggest privileges of whiteness in the U.S. is to go home and not think about the fact that maybe if you have a kid, your kid could be murdered, you know, by police for having their hands in their pockets or for having their hoodie over their head a little bit too low. You can, you can think for a night about not thinking about that. So the fact is, uh, if you wanna live in those privileges, and they're also, that's just race, not, not even talking about economic or, or gendered privileges, ah. then, then, then yes, you can live that way. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's a much better life to live taking the risk of being criticized for making mistakes um, while at the same time fighting for justice. Uh, so then it sounds like those mistakes you know, may, rank, may rank among your, your greatest interventions and memories and learning opportunities. <laughs> do, you have, do you have one in mind as you're giving us this? I mean- Or, or are you just ducking this question you would, that I admit was a hard one? <laughs> I'm sorry, your producer says we're out of time. No, that's <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, uh, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned my pamphlet size book, White Lives Matter Most. The fact is my publishers at PM Press say it's the only book I've ever put together that's saleable because it's not like 800 pages. And of my other books, some writers have actually written reviews saying that in addition to being a very good read, you could actually use this to throw at 
you know, police if they're coming to attack you. So finally, <laughs> I have a book that's actually some one can actually like bring with them on a on a you know on a weekend because it won't weigh down their backpack. So please don't call it pamphlet size. But yeah, in White Lives Matter, most we talk about. I talk about uh, some of those examples. Um, you know, of moments where we're being vulnerable and listening and making mistakes is in fact the way to uh, to learn and grow. Uh, and 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 you know, without me going into more detail that we don't have time for, any of us who have been in any relationship, any one of us who've gotten out of the box, uh, knows that the only way our relationships with other humans grow is by making mistakes, sitting down and breathing and learning from them and moving on. So in, to, in that way, look, there's a lot that gets confused about the interpersonal and the institutional. I believe in institutional change. I don't believe that if we just feel good and act better, the whole system will change. No, no, no. We and have a revolution from within this. Yeah, we have to fight to dismantle the systems of capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy. But there is a connection between understanding how one grows as a person in relationship to other people and how one grows as an organizer, making mistakes, but learning from them and moving forward. So if, you, if you've done one, which we've all done, then I invite everyone to do another, because if we do not organize and build a movement, we will just suffer greater catastrophe. We will see, look, the reason that Trump got the number of votes he did is because they've organized. They've organized. It's not just that they have money. It's not just that there's a lot of racism in the United States. They have organized. And if we do not organize too, whatever the we is, revolutionaries, anarchists, mm -hmm. socialists, communists, humanists, Christians, Jews, if we don't organize for a progressive, forward-looking, justice-based democracy, then we are going to suffer the defeats of lurching incoming 21st century fascism. Human solidarity. When humanists attack, they learn from their mistakes. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's, you know, uh, it's a genuinely inspiring notion. Uh, I'd love to, to, to jawbone much more about it, and I hope we will, but we could close the episode on that, those inspiring words. Thank you so much, Mr. Meyer. I hope uh, uh, you know we'll be able to catch you sometime later in 2021 or 2022. Excellent. You have to stop calling me Mr. Though. I, I anyway. <laughs> but yes, all power of the people. Uh, one love, and and thank you all uh, for the great work you do. Keep it up. Solidarity dancers. Thank you for watching the video to its end. Do those things the algorithms and the humans request you do. Peace out.